Hi, I'm Lan Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Tony Narlock. Tony is a software developer who has worked in startups from New York City to San Francisco, including a Y Combinator startup. He is a prolific open source contributor and has participated in more than 100 open source projects. Tony is the author of the LeanPub book, The Tao of Tmux. His book is focused on helping developers optimize their workflows by explaining what Tmux is and how to use it like a pro. As Tony puts it in his introduction, the book is the culmination of years of, ex of explaining Tmux to uh, others online and in person. In addition to using Tmux for years and having written a popular Tmux starter configuration, uh, a Python Tmux library, and a Tmux session manager, Tony is also the author of an already popular introduction to Tmux that you can find for free online. You can follow Tony on Twitter at Journey2DeWest and the Tao of Tmux, uh, and you can also check out his website at git-pull.com. And you can show your support for Tony's open source efforts by donating at git-pull.com slash support.html. In this interview, we're going to talk about Tony's career, his professional interests, his book, his experience self-publishing with LeanPub, and ways we can improve LeanPub for him and other authors. So thank you, Tony, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Thank you very much, Len. Nice to meet you. Nice to talk to you. Um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, uh, I know you've been around the block, and I was wondering if you could tell me how you first got interested in uh, what you're doing now um, and your path to where you are in uh, the suburbs of Chicago, as I understand. Okay. I mean, I think you'd have to begin when I was maybe, you know, 12 or 13 years old. And, you know, you're kind of there. You're kind of like a, like a poor kid, you know, with his parents, and you want to get started with something. And, you know... Well, what are you going to do? It's like you can't afford a, a license for Windows. You go on there and you see Linux. Free operating system. You can download it, install it on your computer. Like, no problem. Right? So it's kind of like the gateway thing into open source and doing other types of programming. You'll grab a copy of, say, at the time it was Mandrake, they called it. I think they call it Mandriva now. Um, but uh, you grab a copy of that and, you know, over a couple of years, you start to, you know, you know, uh, hip hop, you know, and, and flip between Linux distributions, you know, going from like Debian, going to, you know, Slackware, you know. I remember the days like when it was uh, on Slashdot, and one of the, uh, uh, I think the creator of, of Slackware got sick for a while, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you have some mysterious illness and all that stuff. So it's like you're kind of like living out all this stuff when. Uh, Way before there was ever Dig or Reddit, there was a slash dot, and you would see all this, you know, open source uh, uh, action happen out, out there. You know, kind of like good memories, doing Gen 2 Stage 1 installs, you know, being up at night, and then you'll, you know, be compiling it from Stage 1, doing, you know, the whole bootstrap of it, compiling the compiler, you know, compiling the kernel, and then you'll go to sleep with it compiling. You'll wake up the next morning, and you'll realize 15 minutes into the installation process, it crashed. And it's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Right. Uh, kind of moving. Um, I ended up getting into doing, you know, my first patches uh, to open source projects when I was doing an open source with something called Drupal. Drupal is a CMS web framework in PHP. This was about in uh, 2007, 2008. And this was before Git really came to prominence. I mean, I'm probably part of maybe like the end of the generation when we would actually, you know, not use Git and not use all these decentralized versions and systems. We would be still using, uh, uh, you know, uploading diff files. And 
uh, I decided, you know, there is something here that was like a little bug. I created the difference for it. I went ahead, uploaded that thing. And, you know, it felt like a huge sort of, you know, sense of, you know, collaboration of empowerment to take that patch, have your difference be a part of the big thing and fix something. It's, it's like being a co-author of something. Mm-hmm. It's spectacular. And it, it's, you know, it gives you a, a big sense of teamwork. You're working, you know, with people from all around the world. They're collaborating together. It's like this perfected form of, uh, I mean, it's like a, it's like a business where you've never even see, seen the person before, but you're all working together with all these intermoving parts, you know, and it's happening. Wow. Mm-hmm. And over a period of time, I started getting into doing uh, uh, other stuff. And while I was involved with Drupal, I ended up getting into the Google Summer of Code. So I did that thing. And what's what's And that? I actually Google Summer of Code. So Google does this thing where they sponsor these open source projects, and you know they pick a different set of open source projects every year. And what happens is you can get a, uh, a stipend as a developer, and they'll set you up with a mentor on the project where you can start doing some uh, development on the project on a particular task. So what I did is I made a proposal for an improvement I wanted to make to the Drupal project. It ended up getting picked by the uh, people who had the power to vote on it. And uh, I got to, you know, for a summer, I got to work on an open source project and get paid for it. Fantastic. Wow. You know, fantastic, you know, and um, that's what eventually led me into my first startup gig. You know, not even graduated out of college yet, and I got people emailing me with, with jobs. <laughs> so it's like this amazing thing where uh, the first, um, you know, the, you're, you get your foot in the door through open source programming, and that is a very cool experience. So that actually ended up uh, having me end up in New York City, where I ended up meeting up with um, uh, a company called Social Amp. I ended up getting acquired, uh, acquired by a company called Merkle. So here I am. I'm at this place, and it's kind of an interesting story because I was about to. I was at this uh, incubator ran by NYU Poly and uh, Bloomberg at, at the time. And I was about to leave this other startup I was at and just go back home, go back to Chicago, right? And then I get a phone call from one of the, these people uh, I was just chit-chatting with at the office. And they're like, come on in. We want to talk to you, kind of a thing. And then I end up uh, going with them. And in a period of you know, uh, you know, three to six months, we're moving out of the incubator. And we're going into a corporate environment. And this is like an amazing situation. It's like it's like luck. It's like I like ran, you know, almost like blindfolded. I came into uh, you know an, an aqua hire, just not even trying, <laughs> just pure luck, you know. And uh, uh, that eventually uh, down the road led me to um, doing another uh, Y Combinator startup, uh, being one of the uh, first hires there uh, in San Francisco at a company called Boostable. Did a lot of Django, did a lot of Python, love Python a lot, you know, uh, great, really smart people there. Um, and eventually that led me to wanting to do my own thing. 
And I have all these open source projects that ended up accumulating over time. I have this introduction to TMUX. I have, you know, a lot of other things I have kicking that just aren't even released. Kind of like a musician. Like a musician has like tons of like, you know, uh, stuff that they haven't even bothered to, you know, put up on SoundCloud yet. You know, it's like, how do you even manage? You have this big backlog. So um, that eventually led me down the road to uh, doing this book. Uh, so you mentioned um, getting job offers before finishing college. Um, Correct. And, and I wanted to ask, did you, did you study computer science in college? I mean, that's the funniest part of all. That's the biggest irony of all. Um, I've never taken a single computer course in, in college. I was just doing general studies. I mean, I love to do world geography. I love to do things like Spanish and languages. I mean, I like, you know, uh, you know, the kind of things where you can study things around the world. Those were the things that were fascinating to me. Studying programming in their little tiny areas was never a, a, any interest to me. And I figured it would be a downgrade from the kind of programming I was already doing when I would get back from home in high school. When I was already doing Linux at the time, they didn't have any Linux courses. You know, what gives? You're kind of sitting there and you're like, well, wow, I can I can go learn Windows, but all the investment and my whole wheelhouse is on. It's already doing stuff in, in uh, Linux and open source. Hmm. So, so how did you uh, get? How did you get um, uh, into Linux? I mean, did you did you have someone who pushed you in that direction, or is it just something that you discovered on your own? Did you have like a mentor or? Hmm. I did have mentors in my past, not necessarily for Linux, but for programming. I mean, uh, I remember, um, you know, the Linux thing kind of came from just being, you know, uh, a, a poor student and wanting to try out new things and liking the, you know, liking the aspect of customizing your, you know, desktop system in terms of the software, not the hardware, but actually being able to customize, you know, your desktop environment, your workflow and stuff like that having some, uh, you know, ability to tinker around inside. And um, one of the things was you can just download it, burn the CD, install it. And it just happened through experimentation, just wanting to tweak things over time. And everything's working. Some people just give a thumbs up. For me, when everything's working, I like to keep things working, but it gives me an idea like, well, maybe I can optimize this somehow. Maybe I can improve this somehow. So that's kind of how I ended up kind of bouncing between Linux distributions. What kept me, I think what kept me in it was all these package management systems where you can just very easily at the time, uh, you know, compared to anything else, you can just very easily uh, download packages and search through all these software packages. And they were so immense. It was so abundant. Even, even back then, even, you know, back in like 2003, 2004 was when I was really getting into it. Uh, so as for mentors, I remember I had some people who were also going down the path of programming who were already hired at places back when I was in high school. And they would like help hook me up with like web hosting and stuff like that. And were, you know, uh, very generous. You know, if I ever had a programming question, they would, you know, uh, you know, help me out with stuff like that. So and it's amazing. I didn't go out seeking mentors, but just through chatting people up, I, uh, those things kind of fall into place. It's amazing. It's kind of like the introduction to the Dow of T-Bucks. I just say, you know what? People end up, uh, they don't necessarily, there's not necessarily a math equation to it, but birds of a feather, people end up kind of coalescing with each other. And if they have similar interests, they end up, you know, forming friendships, forming acquaintanceships, you know, even sometimes forming a startup, you know? 
And so um, do you feel like, um, so you don't, you obviously don't feel like you missed anything by not studying computer science in university. I'm only, I'm only bringing it up because it's sort of a theme in, in the interviews that I do with, with people with a programming background is it, it comes up, you know, should you go to university or shouldn't you go to university, um, mm -hmm. you know, to, uh, to become a programmer? <laughs> I love the question. I mean, I love the question um, because um, you know what? Sometimes there's certain types of jobs which treat having that degree very seriously. And there's some, uh, you know, people in HR, if you don't have a college degree, they won't even look at you. And that does happen in some places. They, they you know, a lot of uh, other places, you know, the Googles, you know, a lot of the places that are, you know, Y Combinator startups, uh, they're not focusing on that as much, but they'll say, or oh, equivalent experience. And if that's the case, I could go ahead and I could give them a, you know, give them a resume where I've worked at previous places, done open source projects, portfolios and stuff like that. You know, um, one of the things you do miss out on is on some of these interviews, you're going to get data structures and algorithms thrown at you. And that's something, if you don't have that CS background, you're going to end up having to study on it yourself to make sure that you can get past, you know, that part of the uh, hiring process even if you don't necessarily use that, you know, in, in a startup company, um, uh, there's kind of this uh, belief, this uh, fad, I guess you could say, going around uh, this trend in uh, hiring where we look for data structures and algorithms when we don't necessarily end up using them in, in practice at, at these companies. Speaking, you know? speaking of startups, um, so you've, you've mentioned um, uh, something called NYU Poly. Um, and yeah. also, and also Y Combinator, which is probably better known. Um, uh, and I was wondering if you could sort of talk about your experience, um, at Y Combinator and maybe compare or contrast it with the NYU Poly experience or is at that the, uh, Y Combinator company? Yeah. Yeah. And what it was like, you yes. know, being part of that ecosystem. You know, I love this, um, because it's very interesting when I was at an incubator environment, I remember walking in. And um, it was for a company called Buzzer, B-U-Z-Z-R, and we were a Drupal uh, SaaS platform. And this was, um, you know, back in, you know, 2011, 2012. And it's one of those environments where there's no, like, really, you know, high cubicles or anything like that. You could look, you know, from standing, you could see to the other corner of, you know, the windows on the other side of the, of the building because there's, you know, no high borders in between and you'll see office after office after office, but it's one of these layouts where you could be sitting down in front of your computer and right behind you will be, you know, the founder of another startup. It's great. It's great for making, you know, making acquaintances, making friends and all that stuff. Um, and the networking opportunity is amazing because uh, I'll be there on the computer. Someone will walk by and they'll be like, oh, well, that guy's chomping away at whatever he's doing programming wise. Well, let's go talk to him. You know, and that's kind of how I ended up meeting um, people. One of the persons at the uh, Y Combinator startup I'd later end up working at, his name was Alex Chang. He would be this kid there with this big monitor, right? And he would be uh, programming on it. And it caught a lot of attention, caught a lot of eyes. And I would go up to him, and I saw that he was playing, you know, for um, at the time, he was done with work for the day. And he was playing a game, and I came up behind him, and I'm like, Oh yeah, you need to go build some Marines. We can start back to you. So, and that's like one of the games I was addicted to at the time. 
And that's how we hit up a conversation. And eventually that led to me uh, working with the company who was at Social Amp, you know. So there's something about having all those borders down, being able to talk to people, similar interests, similar skills, you know, uh, being able to collaborate together. That was awesome. And you couldn't have gotten that at a place where it's much more you know, impersonal. If it's the Internet, it's really difficult to form those kinds of bonds you can do in real life. That's really interesting. And would you, how would you, um, I mean, is there a difference between the sort of startup life in New York and San Francisco? Um, or if, I mean, if you're just working all the time, do those things that people might think about, mm. you know, not matter so much? I'm just really curious since you've had that experience in both places. Um, you By um, San Francisco, do you mean the uh, Y Combinator yeah, setup? Yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting one because Y Combinator is more of a thing that provides the seed funding to startups while the incubator is something that provides um, uh, something that's a little bit different. They don't necessarily provide funding, but they what they do is they give you uh, sort of a, an office. They give you a prime location to be at. You know, they give you meeting rooms. They give you internet. They give you... Uh, they give you support, not necessarily financial backing in that case. Whereas Y Combinator, um, uh, they helped give our company support, um, but we would end up going into our own office. We would end up, after Y Combinator, after that initial phase, we would end up getting uh, our own funding and then going off that way. Something Y Combinator does help a lot with it is um, uh, getting access to other Y Combinator companies that also do um, software as a services type things that could help your company. Um, and you can kind of get in and get a deal on those things, you know. So it kind of has some things that would be a bit similar to what you could get in an incubator because um, that networking and all that stuff is kind of almost pre-done for you. If uh, you wanted to collaborate with another Y Combinator company, you can just be like, hey, you know, um, uh, there may be already kind of like a, a special deal if you're a Y Combinator company. But I don't speak on behalf of them, of course. No, no. You know? I understand. And how did you end up uh, back in, well, back, I'm assuming, back in Chicago um, after all this traveling around? So uh, one of these things is, you know, uh, I also ended up uh, popping by China for about a year. And I did a lot of open source programming there. I did a lot of, you know, meeting people there in China. I did a lot of programming there. Um, and I did end up going back to Chicago and it's interesting. It's a very interesting story because I had an opportunity to take at least three jobs abroad and I turned them down because I wanted to come back to the United States. And in retrospect, I wonder, did I miss out on anything? You know, I mean, I could have been there, uh, and I had some pretty nice job offers overseas, but I turned them down because I was, you know, I was like, you know what? There's a big future in the United States and I don't want to miss out on things, you know? Uh, I go back to Chicago and I want to do my own thing. You feel this compulsion. You feel this thing that you can do this stuff yourself and that's its, you know, that's its own thing. Because so it's like, you know what? You've done these open source projects. You've collaborated with other people. You can pull together what you need to whatever it is. You want to write your book. You want to do your startup thing. That's something that we all can do. You know, That's something that we encourage people to do. If other people do it, you do it, Len, you know, uh, and it was one of those things where I was just resolute to start something. Right. That's what led me here. And what did you, what did you end up starting? So I have a couple of things cooking kind of that are, um, 
I don't know if I want to go into this. Oh, you don't have to. Do what I'm doing as a startup. But I think what we can do is segue into book thing. Sure, for sure. Um, Yeah, I think think that would be the best thing. Yeah, sure. I've got a lot of questions about that. Um, So, um, how did the? uh, I know the project's got a little bit of a history, and I was wondering if you could you could talk about how it got started. Yes. So the Dao Timok starts, you know, long before there was ever, you know, uh, a book itself, there was a project I started called TMUXP. TMUXP is this Python-based session manager for TMUX. Basically, you can create a YAML or a JSON file. And just like TMUXinator or TMOSIL, you can go ahead and have it so you preset your session name, your windows, what commands you want to automatically run inside of them, keep it as a file, and then load it, and it will automatically create that team up session, your project workspace, for you. You save that YAML file or JSON file, it'll work across all your systems. Very convenient to have, especially if you're a system administrator, you're a developer, and you always go back and snap back to the same workflow. It's priceless to have that. It was also my first large Python project that I ever, you know, ever, you know, embarked on. Mm-hmm. One just, of the things I had to do. Go ahead. I was just going to say, just so cool. Yes, you're in the command line, right? You're you're there and you're uh, at your terminal, and you want to be able to navigate around it efficiently. You want to be able to, you know, have that same sort of calibration you would have if you were moving through uh, the desktop with your mouse and keyboard, where you just, you know, know things in- intuitively. The power that Tmux gives you is you can split up your terminal into what they call panes, so you can have multiple terminals inside the same window, right? A feature that you would already have, if you're using something like iTerm2, those features and uh, other types of uh, GUI terminals, you can also split windows. The benefit with doing it on the Tmux side is you can keep those splits preserved even if you disconnect from Tmux, so you can go ahead if you're in an SSH session, connecting remotely, for instance, which is something many developers and programmers do, you can detach that session and come back into it, and boom, you're still there. Uh, okay. Very being able to uh, do that. Yeah. So sorry, sorry for interrupting you, but yeah, please carry on. Um, that was a good, good description. Um, and if you could carry on talking about your project. Okay. So. Um, a bit more about Tmux, you know, it's um, uh, something that comes, I think, uh, in the base system of OpenBSD. Uh, I like to contribute, you know, I like to participate a lot around with the FreeBSD community, so, you know, we're friends with, a lot of us are familiar a little bit with OpenBSD, too. Uh, one of the main programmers of, of, of Tmux is someone called uh, Nicholas Marriott, very skilled uh, 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 C programmer, and... Um, this is something, you know, if you've ever used something called a GNU screen before, which is something that's uh, very similar, it's also a terminal multiplexer. Uh, a lot of people end up using screen for a while, and then they say, you know, hey, what the heck, I'll go try Tmux out. And they end up finding, like, oh, this is, you know, simpler, uh, I like the configurations and all that stuff better. Um, and they end up getting started uh, that way because they were already using screen. Um, so then there's that. What Tmux-P does is it works with Tmux to automatically create those project workspaces. So if you have something, say, like a C++ project, and you want to have it so you have 
your process washing all your files to rebuild it whenever you save a file. And you want to have Vim or Emacs up at the top. And then you want to have, like on the bottom right, you want to have just a command line where you can do, you know, custom stuff. You know, for instance, if you wanted to launch LLDB or GDB, right? You can have it so you can just use tmuxp load, whatever the file name for the uh, configuration is, and you're in your work, work environment and you can just hit it. I mean, and the thing I love about it is I'm someone who goes through three platforms. I go through MacOS, I have a Ubuntu machine, and I have a free BSD machine. So I can just load up that same team up session across all those machines and have a consistent environment across all of them. Very convenient, especially in open source when you have to make sure your whatever you put out there is working cross platform. And you um, you made a website where you um, uh, talk about a lot of this. Um, I forget what it's called at the moment, um, but that was the basis for the book. Yes, yes, the uh, the DAO of Tmux. So inside of the Tmux documentation, you know, when I was writing this, I was I was in China at the time, and I was going to give a presentation to a university, uh, Sun Yat-sen University in Guangzhou, and what I was going to do is show them, you know, what I was programming. It was for Software Freedom Day, so it was, you know, open source thing. And I wanted to give them a presentation of what exactly Tmux is, because sometimes words are enough. Sometimes it's really important to uh, convey it through you know, screenshots, examples, even using it up front, showing them what this actually is, uh, showing them the actual value you get out of it, because sometimes words aren't enough, you know. Um, so doing that, I wrote this thing called the DAO Tmux, that gives you a graphical overview of some of the things you can do with it, how a representation of how you compare it to a desktop environment, right? Uh, kind of the concept where a desktop environment allows you to have many windows on the screen at once, many applications on the screen at once. Tmux allows you to do the same thing, you know? Uh, how Tmux lets you, you know, attach and detach a session so you can end up closing your terminal. And then later on when you come back, you know, go ahead and reattach it. It could be an hour after or it could be months after. And you can just, you know, get right back to it, you know. Um, interesting being there because you're over there in China. And, you know, uh, my command of the Chinese language is, even though I studied it for years, it's weak compared to English. And I'm there uh, with other programmers. And one of the benefits of meeting other programmers is very often, I mean, by necessity, they have to have some command of the English language because a lot of the documentation we have for our software projects, English. So I'm there giving my presentation in English to them. Think about that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and um, when did you decide to make a book out of, out of everything that you'd already done? So I had this idea kicking around for a while, but I mean, Mostly, you know, I would probably say for maybe a year or so, I had probably, you know, I was kind of recovering from this massive case of just imposter syndrome I had, where it's like, if I release a book, if I release anything, will anyone, you know, you know, care about it? Will, you know, am I really good enough? Am I really expert enough on something to write a book about it? Well, I mean, you know, how much more of a, of a resident you know, on the subject of team ups, can you get in someone who's written the DAO team ups or something before it's already linked to a software project on it, you know, a configuration on it? Like, I mean, 
I get to the point where you know you're you're using it every day for thousands of hours, and I feel like you know what, maybe we can just pick one thing. We already kind of have the ball rolling on this. Exp- expound upon it and write something on it. And I'm already a documentation engine app. You know, uh, you know. Uh, after all, because open source requires that you go in. You know, we use Sphinx Doc a lot in Python projects and other open source projects. Um, you know, we document everything. So maybe this won't be so hard. Maybe this is very realistic that we embark on a, a book type thing instead of just doing documentation again. And um, why did you decide to use LeanPub? This is a good one. <laughs> <laughs> For probably, oh my goodness gracious, probably for over a year, I was experimenting with my own type of, you know, I know I didn't want to go into my own personal startup ambitions and stuff like that, because it's like no one likes to hear someone's stealth, stealth startup and all that. But uh, I was going to do something with the Sphinx documentation platform for uh, doing books and stuff and doing, you know, just gen- general documentation for software myself. And I was having, you know, uh, so much issues getting the results I wanted. It's not that I couldn't do it. It's just that the level of effort to get a decent you know, ebook out there and have the formatting and the LaTeX and all that other stuff done correctly would have been immense. And also the way I was approaching how I wanted to use things through a software method and not necessarily through a command line method was something that kind of was causing a little bit of friction with the uh, core maintainers of Sphinx. And uh, that's something that I had to, you know, I either had to take the time to diplomatically, you know, uh, work around that, which I do all the time, by the way. I, I mean, I, I kind of defuse diplomatic situations in open source on, on these issues, you know, way more than I should. But um, And then um, I eventually wanted to settle with something where I could make it available on, on GitHub publicly. And I was thinking to myself, you know what? I love restructured text. I mean, I love docutils. I'm from the Python world, and that's kind of like our documentation markup language. But a lot of people really like Markdown. So maybe it's best to kind of just swallow your pride, Tony, and just give Markdown a try. Give it a chance. What do you have to say about that, Len? Give Markdown a chance. Yeah, well, I'm glad, I'm glad you did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I wanted to try something where I could put all of my attention into a book and not have to worry about in content and not have to worry about you know, doing Python programming and do interfacing with Sphinx necessarily. And the reason I ended up looking at, at LanePub was I've seen someone called uh, Derek Bailey doing oh, yeah. a lot of uh, back, backbone type books here, you know, Marionette and all that other stuff. And I uh, ended up grabbing those a, a couple of years uh, earlier. And I'm like, you know what? Wouldn't it be nice to have, you know, all of the, the pace, the pay facilities, all of the you know, the, the front page and advertising it and being able to have the flexibility to get a sample or make it available, you know, for, uh, you know, however you want to on the internet, EPUB, Mobi, PDF. Wouldn't it be nice to kind of just kind of have that done for you so you can just focus on the content? That was the thinking. And um, you've also actually, um, so you've got currently, I'm just looking, your book is featured on the LeanPub homepage today and... Um... Uh, the minimum price is fourteen ninety nine, and the suggested price is nineteen ninety nine. But you've also made it available for free. Um, and I was wondering about your thinking behind that decision. It's something that 
quite a few Leanpub authors do, but does sometimes surprise people about making something available for a, <laughs> for a price and for free at the same time. Yeah, I kind of am a consummate growth hacker in this respect because, um, you know, uh, I have a lot of, you know, open source projects that I can feed into this book to uh, kind of give it a bit more of attention. And also, it's kind of a thing where I'm so used to doing open source and making stuff available, you know, for, you know, when you're, when you're programming open source, you're doing a lot of stuff and you're not asking for necessarily for anything in return. No one pays for, you know, uh, you don't necessarily have to pay for an open source project. So it would have just felt a little odd to me to make something available and not have that transparency. This was like, you know, one of the first things I ever sold completely by myself. So it's kind of like a stepping stone, right? Kind of a thing. The second element of it is I already have the Dial of Tmux available on the internet for free in terms of its smaller form that I had, not the book form, but the page form. And I thought it would have been appropriate to have something where, kind of like a, a marketing type of a thing, where people could browse it for free on the web. But a lot of people, I feel, are really going to enjoy being able to go and have it in the PDF format, the Kindle format, you know, being able to read it on their, their iPad, and stuff like that. A lot of people are just general. I mean, a lot of people just see the work that you put put into something, and they say that that's really helpful. Uh, I'll go ahead and uh, uh, you know get a copy of that. You know, um, taken a bit further, uh, it amazes me from not. I mean, not even having spent a penny on advertising, how I could have a book out there that's available for pre-order, and people are ordering copies of it. Right, and you didn't even have to spend a penny on it. Like I never knew that it was, you know, that would have been possible. If you tried doing that years ago, and it was just a pre-order or something, I mean, there would have been, you know, no one would have been there, you know. And when so, you're yeah, talking about it. when you're talking about pre-ordering, are you talking about um, Amazon? That's another thing. I mean, for one, um, uh, there is pre-ordering on LeanPub and Amazon, and I put both of them available for pre-order. You know. Um, we had a couple, you know, quite a few, I said, I'd say quite a few pre-orders on, on Amazon. We had, um, much more pre-orders on LeanPub. And one of the things with Amazon is when someone pre-orders it, they don't get a copy of it until a certain date. So until whenever the actual date is when it, when it delivers. So I think that that kind of is a issue on Amazon's end where if we had it so they could actually get a live preview of it, like you could this LeanPub. I think I would have had more lean, um, more Amazon pre-orders uh, because people kind of want it now. That's really interesting. I mean, the the I, I guess um, I wouldn't call what we have on LeanPub a pre-order because you, what you do is you, you leave your email address and the amount you might pay, uh, but then you get notified when the book is published, um, mm -hmm. and people love it because it's very like kind of in a way because it's not a this is it's sort of in the weeds, but it's it's sort of because it's not a pre-order. Um, because it's just signaling interest, whereas I believe on Amazon, if you pre-order, you actually have to pay. Is yeah. that is that right? I think you actually have to pay when you do the pre-order, and then it's like when the book comes out. I think out, our terminology, it. our it's our terminology. Okay. When I say pre-order on LeanPub, yeah, I mean my book's progress isn't a hundred percent yet. Oh, I see. People can buy it. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So what we're talking about here. Okay. So 
in the publishing world on something like Amazon, what you can do is you can pre-order a book. So the book might even be, you know, sort of completely produced, but it just hasn't been released yet. So you can buy the book on Amazon and then they'll send it to you um, or release it to you on your Kindle when it's actually released. Whereas with LeanPub, what we have is what we call in-progress publishing, um, which is what Tony took advantage of uh, so well, which is where you can publish your book before it's finished. And then people get updates as the author adds the updates. So is that, I think, I think we've got that cleared up, right? Oh, we do. In okay. progress publishing. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and, um, and yeah. And so that's one of the, one of the things I wanted to ask you about. So what was the, so one of the, one of the sort of canonical ways to use LeanPub is, is the way that, that Tony's done it, which is you can, you can publish your book on LeanPub if you want, but when it's done, um, you can also have it up for available for sale on Amazon. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience because we were, we were talking before, uh, the interview also about how you've you've been drawn into the world of print publishing as well and i was wondering yeah if you could talk about your experience with with using the file from leanpub and then you know getting onto amazon i was so happy when i got my moby file and i was able to go on to the you know uh amazon you know publishing center thing i would upload that epub file and when i was previewing it i was like like this is going to be awesome. You know, it didn't take me, you know, a second of extra work. You know, uh, I was able to go ahead and, um, you know, no DRM, no tricks. Just go ahead and uh, put that thing up on uh, Amazon. Cool. And while I was doing it through the in-progress publishing, what I would do is I would send it to my Kindle so I could preview it, look through it, and kind of proofread it through the uh, Kindle device. So, um, I have to say, you know, one of the things you notice about Amazon versus LeanPub, though, it's nice being able to upload it to Amazon. But LeanPub just gives you so much more flexibility in terms of being able to uh, make your thing for sale and having having them download it and easier access to updated versions of your book. While, as you know, Amazon, there's kind of a bit more of a regimen, regimented process. You know, uh, same thing would go with iBooks. Um, and one of the... Uh, uh, things that's uh, a little bit different, you know, with uh, Amazon is how they handle uh, royalties, for instance. Uh, and it can be a little bit confusing to people, uh, something to read into. Um, and same thing with uh, iBooks, you can end up getting into a situation where their uh, admin interface for uploading iBooks is very similar to what they do for apps. So that may throw people off if they're used to doing, you know, uploading their stuff for a, a book. It may be too much work. They may throw their hands in there and just say, you know what? I think it's just okay if I just use Amazon, which is what I ended up doing. I ended up opting that route. Um, and you, you, uh, you've just gotten a print version of your book that you made um, on Amazon. Yes, I have it available. Uh, you can see kind of a, a photo of it on the Dial of uh, Twitter account. Uh, I don't know if I can throw a link your way or not. Oh, I can but, find uh, it. Yeah. Um, I have to say, when I saw the cover of that thing and it came in, I was like, wow, this is fantastic. And look, all I had to do was go ahead and upload this, you know, uh, uh, Mobi file, just do a little bit of editing to the cover I was already using anyway, put it into kind of a PDF form, rasterized the fonts. And then I get a free ISBN. I get all this cool stuff. 
and it only takes a small amount, a small cut of um, what you would uh, uh, make out of the book, you know, and you can just do it on demand. Fantastic. Yeah. It looks beautiful. Yeah, I was going to actually, I have, um, I guess my last question is um, you, I noticed you have a great cover for your book. Um, and I was wondering um, where you where you got that from. So, I mean, I I'm an, an I'm not a graphic designer, but I am a graphic designer, and like I'm really good at pulling the aesthetic for things and being effective at that. But I've done a lot of graphic art before. Um, you know, I've used kind of like a color scheme thing on top of it that I ended up using actually inside the book. You can't really see it on the print version of it. But you can actually see what I ended up using for my cover, the green and the gray and stuff like that. I ended up using that inside with the graphics I had in the book. Oh, okay. That's kind of a cool thing to think about. Yeah. Okay, well, um, thanks a lot, Tony. Um, uh, I guess our time's about up, but I really wanted to thank you for taking the time to do this um, and for making such a great book. I appreciate that, man. Thank you very much. Thanks.